0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, uh, host of the Remnant Podcast, who is wallowing in self-pity in my San Francisco hotel room, uh, because I have come down with some sort of cruddy, cold kind of thing on my book tour, and uh, some a bit like uh, Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, just sort of trying to do my sort of weird Tai Chi while sweating and tearing apart my, uh, my hotel room here in San Francisco. Uh, but that's not important right now. What is important is that this week's episode is brought to you by Dutton Books, publisher of Peter Kersenow's brand new thriller, Second Strike. So, um, as I said, I'm in the middle of the book tour, and so recording podcasts is a little complicated, though I'm pleased to announce that it looks like we're going to do a second podcast this week with that Ben Shapiro guy. Um, that should be interesting. Hopefully, I'll be well by then. And, um, uh, and so this podcast is, was actually recorded last week, um, last Friday, in Washington, D.C. at the giant AI Ricochet Podcast Summit. Full disclosure, I was working on about three hours of sleep then, which is probably why I got sick now. I flew in from Dallas to be there. And, uh, Jack and I just basically did a Q and a thing with the audience. And, um, for those of you, if my wife is listening, uh, you should just know that, you know, uh, Jack really doesn't mind the abuse nearly as much as you do, but that's another topic for another day. Anyway, so that's the show, uh, that we're going to do. And, um, we're going to queue it up in a second. And if I sound low energy, don't worry about it because I wasn't that low energy in the actual thing. I'm just, uh, low energy right now, uh, and I'm going to go take a bath with a toaster in a second. So here we go. Oh my God. First of all, I should say, since it's in fact true, this episode of The Remnant um, and all the shows being recorded here at AI and the Ricochet Podcast Summit um, graciously hosted by our friends and my employers at the American Enterprise Institute is sponsored by Donors Trust, the community foundation for liberty. If you care about limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise, Donors Trust is the charitable partner to choose. Learn how Donors Trust can help you at DonorsTrust.org slash To be perfectly honest, I'm outraged this doesn't say DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo, but um, I'll just go with the flow. So... Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm I'm Jonah Goldberg, and this is some guy, and um, and this is the Remnant podcast. And uh, I was in five cities in five days this week, and I'm a little I'm a little tired, and, and like in what's it I think it was Austin two days ago. Uh, I woke up covered in somebody else's blood, and it really kind of freaked me out. Um, I still haven't figured out what that was all about, and uh, but I promised Scott Emergut. That I would do this, and he promised to uh um, unhandcuff my daughter from that motel <laughs> towel rod if I did it, and so it all worked out and um, so I'm here. Uh, i 'm here am I am truly truly exhausted, and uh, uh, i I was outrageously overserved last night after I finished a talk about my book out in Dallas, um, and then I had to get uh, up at five thirty so of course my body woke me up at four thirty So if I just start screaming things like "Get these squirrels off of me" or something like that, just write it off as some sort of vision quest. I'm a little annoyed with uh, with with Jack because, true to form of the way this is, of the the mystique of this podcast is that he really should have been wearing his leather onesie, Um, and we should have had him brought out here in a big crate and we let him out, you know, and then I can. As people get me questions from the audience, I could drum my fingers on his scalp or something. It'd be kind of fun. But no. Well, 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 remember that you could have easily lied to the, the the listeners of this podcast and
1: said that I was doing... All those things were being done. Um, but now you just gave up the game. That's
0: probably true. Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, there's still time to get you back in that thing. Um, <laughs> Good luck. So, uh, uh, so it's been a really great book tour. It's been really interesting. I'm not going to tell you all the stories from the road, in, in part because that could be used as evidence against me later. But um, I've been amazed at these book signings I've done I did it in Chicago, uh, Austin, Dallas. How many people come up to me and, first of all, and let's be clear, they ask about the dogs a lot more <laughs> than they ask about Jack. But they ask about Jack quite a bit. <laughs> and I was really kind of shocked by it. And, uh, and I am too. Yeah, and I know it makes Jack almost as uncomfortable as it makes me. But uh, I've, And it's also just been kind of amazing to me how many people are podcast listeners that talk to me about it. I don't mean this as a bragging thing. They'll come up to me and they talk about the weekly substandard, which does mystify me. Um, uh, what is that? I've never heard of it. Well, no, it's it's, it's, it's an interesting show where this guy... V- uh, Vic Mattis, uh, he talks about his intestinal blockage a lot. Um, but uh, no, but they'll come up to me and they'll they'll ask me about Glop. They'll ask me about the commentary podcast. I actually signed a couple of books. Hashtag Never Put this week, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and uh, it's just, I think it's a really interesting thing about how this seems to be really is. I mean, it's sort of a cliche now, but how it's the golden age of podcasts or podcasts. as time has come, and I think one of the reasons why that is true is because so much of the mainstream political discourse is uh, just such garbage. And there's so much screaming and there's so much yelling. I think that is, I thought that, and I think we might talk about this later, but the Barry Weiss intellectual dark web thing, I think kind of discussed a really interesting important phenomenon, but kind of maybe from the wrong angle. Um, and the interesting angle is not so much how these specific people are doing all this podcast stuff as great as some of those people are including some of my colleagues uh, but how so much of America itself is just sort of turning off tuning out a lot of the sort of carnival stall barking shows um, and the screaming that's going on out there I think there's some problems with it because you get balkanized and all the liberals go listen to their podcasts and have their polite conversations about their topics about quinoa or whatever I don't know what they talk about and then the um, and the conservatives go off into our little corners and, you know, if, if it's a certain pop culture podcast, they talk about Chinese buffets and Reston. If it's one that, you know, Steve Hayward or me are on, it's, 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 it's geeking out on Leo Strauss or something like that. But it would be good to have more cross-pollinization. But, regardless, I think it's a sort of an interesting people, example of a market voting with its feet. And I think the fact that you guys are here and such fans of Ricochet, which does puts out such great stuff... Um, is, is testament to that. So instead of having a guest, I, I thought what I would just do is recite from memory the entire script of the movie The Warriors for you. <laughs> um, and then maybe, you know, when we get to the Cyrus doing Can You Dig It, you know, we'll all do it together. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, we decided not, we didn't want to do a guest. We wanted to do, in part, because I didn't know if I was actually going to make it if my flight was delayed. Then we have, like, Ben Sass sitting here telling you how to grow soybeans or something like that. <laughs> um, and so, I've, and partly also because I haven't had time to get too deep in the weeds on, like, what's actually going on in the world. So we figured we would just do it as sort of a Reddit, ask me anything kind of thing. And so you guys have been kind enough to write questions. Um, and uh, some very nice young lady over here, she came up to me very nervously about 10 minutes ago and said, I, I missed the deadline to give out the questions. And and so this posed a huge ethical crisis for me because I, <laughs> you know, the Coopers and Librand model says I cannot look at the question. And so I held it like this with my back to it and brought it over to, to Jack to look at. So I have no idea what the question is. Um, I really hope it's not some sort of the power of Christ compels you, exorcism type thing, but we'll find out. Why are you worried about getting an exorcism? That's an excellent question. <laughs> it might have something to do with waking up a couple of days ago with blood that wasn't my own all over my body, but it could be, I don't know, it could be something else. So <laughs> okay. uh, why don't we get started? Uh, Jack, everybody, if you don't actually know his name, it's Jack Butler. Uh, my wife says I'm way too mean to Jack um, and I just keep I mean, literally. This is a conversation I have three times a week with my wife. You know, she's like, "You're too mean to Jack," and I'm like, "He likes it." So, I'll I, neither confirm nor deny that. Yeah, um, I, I'm I, I'm sort of like the A.G. Schneiderman of podcasting. I swear he likes it.
1: Okay, moving on <laughs> uh, to the first question asked. Uh, I don't think he would m- mind my saying by our good friend Steve Hayward, and I know you ha- you're. You you haven't been asked enough questions about your book lately. That's true. Uh you so here's another one. Uh what things did you cut out of the book, Suicide of the West Bite Now, uh that you think we should know about uh besides the Bigfoot erotica?
0: <laughs> well, as 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 Steve, who is an actual accomplished Straussian knows, uh the Bigfoot erotica is deeply implied in the silences of the book. Um, but uh <laughs> Um, I, I could go on a great length about this question but the first question about the book that I, I do want to and I'm, thanks to Steve for, for this penetrating and insightful question but the, the more important question first is I've been asked a lot Jonah is, there, is it true that there's an upward limit of the number of copies of the book I can buy? And I just want to be clear <laughs> there isn't um, but other than that I, look I, there was a whole there was about as you know um just the, he was the broom behind the elephant on this whole book. I went into great historical detail on nationalism, and uh, you will be seeing takes on nationalism over the next couple of years in various eddy journals. Um, I'm sure. One of the so what, for those who don't know, the final book is 300 something pages, not including the footnotes and all that. And the original manuscript was about two and a half times that size. And so you couldn't really cut it with a scalpel. You had to sort of just use a hatchet. And so there, I had a piece in commentary recently about the, the, the fundamental anti-Semitism of Marxism that informs all of Marx's theory that uh, from Marx's labor theory of value to the entire idea of exploitation essentially starting with his dislike of money-grubbing of Jews and his sort of self-hatred as a, as a no longer a Jew. But And so I wrote that piece up. I turned that into a piece in commentary. I think one of, the th- one of the chapters I most enjoyed writing about was how... So part of the thesis of the book is that um, human nature keeps will always come rushing back in if you don't hold it at bay. It's like the second law of thermodynamics. Everything, there's a natural tendency towards entropy. As the Roman poet Horace says, uh, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork. It'll always come rushing back in. And so one of the things that sort of fascinates me is how Marxism and communism are these really unnatural ideas that basically come out of the Enlightenment, which say that the entire world should be united, or one class worldwide should be united. And the idea that you can convince human brains to have a real sense of social solidarity all around the world, just because you share a certain socioeconomic bracket, is more unnatural than you know, than a lot of other unnatural ideas that have taken hold around there. And what sort of, and this sort of points to one of the reasons why I sometimes tell people this book is a prequel to liberal fascism, because you know one of the reasons why fascism took hold was that the 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 ideas inherent in international communism is this idea that a plumber in uh, Minsk should have the same sense of social solidarity with a plumber from Milan. Or from Minneapolis, right? That those binds, just because of their status, class, in the economic strata, and all that, uh, that they are these workers of the world should unite. And the reality is, is that fascism allowed people to feel like socialists, but actual also have fellow feeling with people of the same nationality. You know, if you're a factory worker in in Rome you may not like your boss, you may like your boss, it doesn't really matter, but you still speak the same language, you come from the same culture, your kids may play on the same soccer club, there are all these things that you have in common, you have the same historical heroes, you've read the same books, you like the same plays, this is sort of the meat that lets people sort of have tribal affiliations with one another. And so one of the reasons why fascism gets called right wing is because the National Socialists were eating the lunch of the International Socialists everywhere there was a competition. And so one of the things I, I wrote a very long chapter on was how quickly the Soviet Union, which sort of starts as this internationalist thing, segues within 10 years into essentially just hardcore nationalism, right? Despite the fact that almost everybody with an elbow patch in a Western university was insisting, no, 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 nationalism is the opposite of communism. The reality was everywhere communism was tried, very quickly they give up on the internationalism and they become nationalistic. And I went through the sort of, Max Eastman wrote these wonderful dispatches about how the revolution was being betrayed and the country was going back towards all of these sort of nationalistic notions. By the time you get to World War II, it's not the fight for global communism. It's the great patriotic war for Mother Russia. And one of the examples which I talk about a a bunch in that chapter, which is not in the book, is North Korea. North Korea in the 1980s was full of all sorts of communist Marxist garbage, right? I mean, it it started out as a Stalinist satellite state, and within 30 years of its founding, it started to transform into something much more recognizable to uh, someone who's been watching human history for the last 250,000 years. It turned into a divine right of king's monarchy, right before our very eyes. It is now the divine right of the Kims, you could say, but, um, you know... Grandpa Kim was supposedly born in a, this miraculous moment on a mountain where night turned to day, according to official Korean propaganda. Kim Jong Un is awesome to read some of the propaganda about him. First of all, he apparently wrote the what, are, what the entire world agrees are the like the ten or twelve greatest symphonies ever written. While he was in college, he read something like twelve hundred books and he wrote like two hundred. You know, I mean, I can begin the numbers a little off, but it's something like that. Uh, he invented the ham either he or his father invented the hamburger, according to the Korean propaganda and um my favorite is that uh, when he was in college his Kim Jong un his body was so efficient that he didn 't need to use the bathroom which which surprise you the efficiency of his body when you see him on the news clips today uh, He basically looks like a you know Asian was it? What's the guy from the Ham- McDonald's commercials? It's not Grimace. Maybe it was Grimace. Anyway, the, the big, big purple dude. Yeah. yeah, that's Grimace. Yeah, that's Grim. So he, looks he makes an busy. appearance
1: in Avengers: Infinity
0: War. Spoiler. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how quickly my mental hard drive was spinning, trying to remember where I saw Grimace in Infinity War. Is that a joke? Yes. Because otherwise, that's all we're going to talk about for the rest of the time.
1: Grimace. The name Grimace is mentioned in the
0: movie. Oh, okay, the name. It's a name-dropping thing. Yeah, yes. From Chris Pratt, I assume. Yes. Yeah, okay. All right, so uh, with that segue, what, what else you got?
1: Uh, well, do you, wanna, do you want to answer any more book-related questions? Why don't we take a break from the book for a second? Okay. Oh, dear God. <laughs> for those who didn't see, uh, <laughs> Rob Long just marched onto the stage with utter impunity and handed Jonah a question. Yeah, but
0: we should also know that Rob has been day-drinking.
1: Has he been micro-dosing as well?
0: Yeah, uh, he asked the question, "Whose blood was it?" And question like, written in blood. Weirdly and, and enough, no, the funny thing is he, he misspelled whose. He wrote w h o s e. No, that's right. That's right. I. <laughs> so I'm an idiot. Uh... Gosh, why did I think it should be the contraction, the possess? Uh, who gives a rat's ass? I don't know. That's the whole thing. It's a mystery. <laughs> it's a mystery, Rob. That's the that's the joke. It's a mystery because it's not mine. It suggests that once again I was on a three-state killing spree in my sleep, you know, which has happened more than I would like to admit. Certainly under oath. So anyway, next question. Talk about it on
1: Glop, Rob. Um, all right. Let's, so let's move into some some more contemporary political issues. Can you please discuss the fallacy of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater to argue for limits on rights? Gosh. Okay. I guess this isn't quite contemporary, since that phrase is about a hundred plus years old. Yeah.
0: Um, first of all, uh, you can yell "fire" in a crowded theater <laughs> if it's on fire. <laughs> um, you know, truth is a defense against all sorts of things. If if you see the flames going up the sides of the walls and small children's hair starting to smoke, yell "fire." You won't get in any trouble. Also. You know, one other, just again to pander to Hayward here, um, you need to have an original understanding of the phrase "shouting fire in a crowded movie theater," because back when that was a live proposition, the theaters were lit by gas lamps, and so there was a real potential. There's a real terror about fires starting up, right? I mean, now how do you start a fire in a movie theater today? I mean, I guess it's, it's like if you're crack torch goes malfunctions or something but, but the main problem with this is that people use this kind of thing when they want to basically make an argument about how we should have a heckler's veto right the argument is essentially you can't say mean things about people who will act irresponsibly and irrationally and kill people in response to mean things um, or insensitive things and uh, this is the thing that you know we're not going to get deep in the weeds of Benghazi again People forget in the first couple of weeks after the Benghazi stuff, basically the entire elite liberal media establishment from the and, and also the president in the White House talked openly about the need, how we had to revisit free speech in this country because of, uh, alleged, first of all, this movie that really didn't spark the thing in the first place. But you had New York Times op-eds. I remember listening to a Diane Reem show where they were talking about how... You know, In this global age, the idea that you can just say whatever the hell you want to say when it might incite barbarians to storm our embassy and kill our people seemed just a really shockingly – it was amazingly how cheap they held the First Amendment that they were willing to throw it under the bus so quickly. And this is one of the things that drives me crazy about that phrase, um, I may disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend your right to say it to the death or however that thing goes, right? Because first of all, I read about this in my – my last book. This was always meant. It was. Is it, it's not Montesquieu. Who was it? Anyway, some Frenchy. Voltaire. Voltaire. He comes up with this as sort of a joke to bad mouth a book. Um, I don't think it was Voltaire. Anyway, uh, we'll find out. It'll be in the show notes. Um, uh-huh. And I hear you hear this all the time on. Co- I would hear this all the time on college campuses, and were these young, earnest, you know, liberal kids, you know, that one day would run a podcast called Pod Save America or something. <laughs> uh, would say to me, no, Mr. Goldberg, I may disagree with what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. And first of all, they're lying. Um, (laughs) Because there's no way they're going to risk their lives for me. I just know it. Um, But it's what it really is, is a form of bravery on the cheap, right? You want to claim that you would do these kinds of things when you wouldn't. I think it is entirely fine to yell fire in a a crowded theater if it's on fire. I think it is perfectly fine to yell all sorts of things that people are going to react badly to in the sense that it shouldn't be illegal or unconstitutional. That doesn't mean you should do it just to get a rise out of people. I think people who deliberately burn the Quran because they think it's cool or funny or triggering or transgressive are morons. Um, but one of the things, if, if, if we're going to set up a system where the cho- only choice in the public square is between defending some guy's right to burn the Quran or getting rid of the First Amendment, then I'm going to defend the guy's right to burn the Quran, but I'm also going to defend the right to call him a moron. Yeah, you call me a moron all the time. Um. Again, truth is the best defense.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so staying in contemporary politics here, recently you said your foreign policy is in flux, or your foreign policy views. Excuse me, Not the. I don't, I'm not referring to the foreign policy of Goldbergia. That's a different matter. So, what has caused this rethinking, and in what direction do you think you're heading?
0: Uh, That's a good question. Um, I don't have the reasons. It's the reason why I can't give a great, thought-out answer is because it is in flux. I think if you haven't rethought some foreign policy stuff since the Iraq War, you need to start now. And one of the things I'll just put it this way: one of the things I got out of the book is how really how how important it is. What is it that General Kutsov Kutsu, says in War and Peace, time and patience are sort of everything? Um, th- the culture that created America and that turned America into a free country didn't, like, spring up overnight. It was a cultural phenomenon that took generations of Hayekian trial and error and all that kind of stuff. And it's a fragile, delicate thing, and it's something I didn't appreciate as much when I was starting, before I started the book. And so I am... I was never, like... All in for nation building in the first place, but uh, I'm much more skeptical of that kind of thing. Um, I'm I'm more sympathetic than I used to be to the "rubble doesn't make trouble" arguments, but at the same time, I should put it this way: philosophically, I'm still where I always was, which is that I think you have to be a an idealist about ends, about where you want to go, what you want to see, you know, the world look like, what you want to see um, how how things transpire, but you got to be pretty instrumental and pragmatic about means. And uh, the idea that uh, democracy lurks in the beating heart of everybody and a desire for it, I think, is less less apparent than I once did. And what that means as a uh, for the policy consequences, I'm not sure. But I'm much more I, I believe much more in sort of cost benefit analysis about a lot of things. If you told me it would cost one dollar and one soldier's hangnail to have regime change in North Korea, it seems to me moronic not to do that, right? But if the price is, you know, millions of South Koreans dead or millions of Americans dead or LA in smoldering ruins, which can cut both ways, um, <laughs> you got to rethink it. So uh, the end goal should be free countries. Prospering countries everywhere in the world with a loose and generous understanding of what freedom means, but how you get there and on what timetable you get there and by what means and at what costs, I'm much more open to uh, competing points of view these days. But Russia still sucks, if that's what you mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, speaking of, well, this is, I'm not i am not going to try a segue here. Let's just go straight to this awkwardly.
0: Okay, so uh, <laughs> this is obviously an inserted ad. At this point, because I didn't know about this ad when we were at the podcast summit last Friday, but I'm glad to help it out because uh, Peter Kersenow is a longtime friend of National Reviews, friend of mine. He's a great guy. I haven't read his novel yet, but um, it's supposed to be a lot of fun. And I would not shock me at all if it's fantastic because he's such a talented and interesting guy. Peter Kersenow's latest is a gripping high stakes thriller in which special operator Mike Garin faces off against a lethal Russian assassin and a devious plot to wreak chaos in America. Read an excerpt of Second Strike at prh.com slash strike. That's prh.com slash strike. And Peter Kirsnow's latest is available wherever books are sold. So check it out, and thanks to Dutton Books for the sponsorship, and let's get back to the uh, strange conversation we were just having.
1: What do you think the direction of China as a, as a sort of national entity is? Is it going to become ever a, a, a free market lodestar or paradise, or is it just going to keep with its sort of hybridized communist party, domineered, pseudo-capitalist, statist model?
0: Yes. You know, what was it, Um, was it? and this is supposedly, I guess, ap- apocryphal, challenge Lai, the Chinese premier in the 70s, was asked what he thought history's verdict on the French Revolution was, and he responded, Too soon to tell. I don't know. You know I wrote about a, I wrote a column sort of about this recently, which again is reflected my change thinking about a lot of things. There used to be this big argument you would hear from a lot of libertarians and a lot of other people that technology was inherently liberating. And I think that's sometimes true. And it's sometimes not true. And there is no teleological Algorithm that says the spread of technology will automatically be liberating at all times. There was a time when it seemed like technology was on the side of oppressors. That's why one of the reasons why George Orwell wrote 1984 because the technology was all on the hands of the bad guys, or it seemed like it could be. And then we had this long period where no, it turned out that technology was liberating. I remember one of the first editorials I read in National Review. It was all about how the Soviet Union couldn't have a thriving economy because they had to chain up their Xerox machines at night at the libraries for fear that people would copy and disseminate information that the state didn't want them to. And I found that very compelling. But technological changes can yield new realities. Uh, this sort of gets to what Whitaker Chambers would call the Beaconsfield position. And I think that if you look at China today, technology's on the side of oppression, right? This, this, this social credit score thing, is terrifying if you actually think it through. What it is basically doing is it's so I have this thing at the end of the book where I talk about how one of the most one of the greatest challenges western civilization has is we've lost the concept of god-fearing. Because one of the things that when you're god-fearing it's sort of like Adam Smith's impartial spectator but but with like flowing robes and lightning bolts, right? And it's this, you know, it's sort of a hallmark card kind of thing that says if you uh, that good character is what you do when no one else is watching. But if you had this idea that God is watching you, you know, you're know, you kind of on your toes a little bit more. And um, in China, the state really is watching you all the time. And so that create And it's going to be when this thing is fully brought online, truly. And it's going to affect... And it's going to have facial recognition. It's going to affect what you can buy, where you can live, what kind of jobs you can get. And if that's constantly in the back of your mind, you're gonna learn to be unfree in your heart and your soul. And this whole perfectibility of man idea, which has caused so much horror and chaos over the last three hundred years, thank you very much, Rousseau, may be getting a new lease on life in some place like China. And so I don't know. At the same time, it turns you know, the fact that they've had such horrific gender selection abortions that the number of men outnumbering the number of women is so messed up uh, there's a it's well documented in the social science literature that whenever you get a society when you have really out of whack large male populations things get violent pretty quickly and and so I think that cliche about how the Chinese government is 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 more afraid of the people than the people are of it um, has a lot going for it but the Chinese government is acting on that fear to sort of, you know, was it, was it Brecht who said, if the people were wrong, elect a new people? They're kind of electing a new people. And I think this is something that really has to be thought through. They figured out, a, you know, if if the Han Chinese were blonde, white Europeans and all the other ethnic minorities in China were African American or Africans, everyone would instantly recognize this as the most hideous case of Jim Crow the world has ever seen. The discrimination against non-ethnic Han Chinese in China is profound. You have to, you can't get internal passports, you can't get certain jobs, you can't get into universities, and no one in the West cares about it, and no one in the West talks about it. And the Chinese, if you if you point out any of this to the Chinese, yeah, that's the way we do things, and that's about it. And and so I think there's a really there's a there's a understanding gap in the West about the nature of China that is really profound and I don't I'm not claiming to have my head around it but I'm also just not confident I can predict where it's going to go
1: all right should we uh should we pause to read the ad
0: we should pause to read the ad because I thought about doing that but I thought about having a segue about Chinese authoritarianism and then doing a quick thing for donors trust but instead I will just do the ad right now so uh you know just a quick reminder that we're being sponsored today by donors trust Did you know you actually have the ability to make a difference in stopping the slide away from the bedrock American ideals of liberty? Donors Trust, the community foundation for liberty, wants to help you find those organizations doing the important work on the issues that matter the most to you. A donor advised fund at Donors Trust gives you a way to simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits, and protect your privacy all with a partner that understands and shares your commitment to a free society and limited government. So are you ready to be more strategic in your giving? Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet to receive your free Experts Guide to Effective Giving and see how you can use your charitable dollars to put free market ideas into action. You will also receive a special bonus, the Investing in Liberty Guide, that offers a step-by-step process to strategically support America's bedrock principles through your giving. That's DonorsTrust.org/slash Ricochet. So, next question.
1: Well, you didn't have a good segue, but I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, since we were just talking about China, I know you're such a you're a huge fan of Tom Friedman and his desire for America to be China for a day. Mm-hmm. So, say that uh, America is China for a day, and you become. Uh, the premier of the Communist Party, or, or the equivalent—you're the king of America. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the policy you'd implement that everyone would have to follow that you think would just fix everything? What what is it?
0: Well, it's funny. There's this weird policy uh, document that that is not used much today, but really has answers to everything. It's called the Constitution. Um, uh, I've, I've heard of that. And uh, isn't that kind of old though? It is. It's old. It's like over a hundred years old, as Ezra Klein once pointed out. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the Constitution be good, you know. What has two thumbs likes the Constitution? This guy. Um, he pointed
1: his thumbs himward. Yes,
0: that's right. Uh, if, but other than that, and I, and I don't want to do my federalism spiel again. I've been doing federalism spiel all week long. Federalism good. It says so in the Talmud. It says so in the City of God and City of Man. It, it's just it's good. Okay, push as much power down the most local level possible. Um, and I think one, but so a different policy thing we could do as my mental hard drive skit, spins very quickly, one of my age-old desires has been to uh, make election day and tax day the same day. And that you actually vote, the back of your check is your ballot. <laughs> and there's no withholding. right? So you have to just hold on to this cash all year long, and then you literally get to decide what you want to buy with it. Right, because that's what your—that's what the voting is, and and I think the resurgence of the libertarian yeoman spirit in this country would be profound. Right, uh, there's this great story about at, at CORES, years ago when they first when they first put in withholding, which, as we all know, was Milton Friedman's greatest mistake, um, which he later admitted and was very sensitive about. But he was trying to raise money to win a war, and it was a really efficient way to win a war. He never thought it would be permanent, the with- paycheck withholding. And that's why he, for the rest of his life, would say there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. But anyway, uh, when they first put in withholding, Adolf cores or Helmut or right, whichever one was the first one, he hated it. And so what he did is he set up two windows down in payroll, where at the first payroll window, you were paid in cash you're in full paycheck, no withholding. And then you were told, go to the second window and pay back your withholding. So you actually sort of internalized how much the man was taking from you. And of course, the feds realized this is no good. Um, And so they made it against the law. But I would get rid of all that kind of stuff. Election day, there's a reason why election day and tax day are about as far apart as mathematically possible on the calendar because they want the sting to wear off by election time. And I want... I want maximum sting on tax day. And I think that would help people understand about why we should push things the most local level possible because I think most tax dollars should stay closer to home anyway.
1: Anyway. Um, I'll try another segue here. Since you're talking about discomfort.
0: uh, Are we going to talk about VIX, you know, uh, digestion problems again? No. uh, No. No.
1: Okay. I am going to ask you just a completely off-the-wall question. What do you think is the sweatiest movie of all time? And restrict this to non-pornographic answers, please. Um,
0: well, first of all, when they finally make the screen adaptation of Bigfoot Erotica that the world has been waiting for, it may be a competitor. I said um, non-pornographic. It's not pornography. It's erotica. It's like that old joke about what's the difference between, um, what is it? Uh, what is it? Oh, gosh, it's Something like, what's the difference between sexy and kinky? Something like that. And sexy uses the feather and kinky uses the whole chicken. Um, uh, where were we? Oh, sweatiest movie ever made. So this is this is actually a, just kind of a cruel subtweeting kind of thing of Rob Long because uh, I, in the, and I don't know who asked this, but in the first iteration of the Goldberg file, nigh upon 20 years ago now. Um, I was barely alive. Um <laughs> I'm just gonna serenity now. I was inspired by an episode of Cheers that ha- where the the episode was full of people debating. Which Rob Long was oh you have never heard this before, but Rob Long was a, a, an executive producer of, of Cheers, and they had this huge debate at, at at the bar about what the sweatiest movie ever made was, and everyone's you know, Ben Hur and this, and that, and the other thing, and. Um, at the end, I think it was Diane's boss or old girl, old boyfriend or something like that settled the issue by just saying, Cool Hand Luke. And everyone was Ah! <laughs> of course, Cool Hand Luke. So, and, um, but there is also that, uh, that movie, A Time to Kill, which J. Pod, uh, reviewed under the headline in the Weekly Standard, A Time to Schwitz. Um, because <laughs> there was, there was a lot. Of sweating in that movie. I mean, there really wasn't anything. I mean, I, I I would not shock me if there was somebody on set whose title in the credits was Sweat Boy. <laughs> um, Isn't
1: that my title?
0: Some days. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think I'll just leave it there for that one. Okay.
1: Okay. Here's a tough question for you. I'll pause while you r- replenish. Do you have any pets? <laughs> <laughs> This is an actual question that someone asked, but I, don't, I, I think it was meant ironically. That's my guess.
0: I, I thought we weren't going to do any questions about you. Um, <laughs> uh, come on, guys. It's a routine. I'm a very nice boss most of the time. Yeah, please uh, be nice to me. Otherwise, I'm going to get the hose again. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I have, I, I, I have some animal companions. We have Zoe, the Carolina dog. We have Pippa, the ditzy springer spaniel and we have Gracie, the good cat, and we have my wife's cat.
1: Um, might political divisions be understood as dog, lo- dog lovers versus cat lovers? And the asker of this question wanted me to emphasize that this is intended as a playful, not a sarcastic question. So sorry if my delivery was sarcastic and not playful. I kind of only have one uh, to- uh, voice tone and sarcastic. So,
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, his, his voice is sort of like, Henry Ford's line of cars. you can come in any style you want, as long as it's black. Um, I'm just glad you
1: didn't say my voice is like Henry uh, Ford's uh, views about the Jews. Yeah. I guess oh. so. <laughs>
0: we're we're going to go into Jeremy Corbyn territory. Okay. Um, uh, I used to think there was more truth to this. In fact, in the early days of the Corner uh, National Review, we would have heated debates about Cats versus dogs, and whether they spoke, and whether dogs were Republicans and cats were Democrats, or the other way around. And, you know, I think it, you know, Max Weber talked about how a truly charismatic personality is one where different people can impose interpretations on it that are at odds with other people's interpretations. I think one of the reasons why cats and dogs have managed to in- infiltrate our homes. Is precisely because they're so charismatic, and so people project upon them the characteristics that they want to project on them. So conservatives will like cats say, "Look, they're independent, you know, they're self-sufficient, they don't rely on anybody. They're like little furry Horatio Alger's, right?" And <laughs> and conservatives will like dogs will be like, "Oh, but dogs are so loyal, and they're patriotic, and they do all these wonderful things." And so I try, it's like, you know, one of the things I've kind of given up is the French bashing, and another thing I've given up is the cat bashing. Because, one, I have two of these things in my house. Um, two cats or two French?
1: <laughs>
0: that's an excellent question. Um, and uh, I'm not going to answer it, though. Uh, uh, and so I don't think you can, in fact, draw deep political significance between cat fandom and dog fandom. Uh, But we can all agree that anybody who owns a ferret needs to be institutionalized.
1: (sighs) Uh, Have you had to deal with any, like, bizarre emotional support uh, animals on the various flights you've been making lately?
0: I haven't. I'm always, like, people can always tell I'm a dog guy, because when the emotional support dogs come on the plane... I light up like, you know, like I'm in first class and they're bringing, you know, the ice cream sundae or something. Um I love those dogs. And I always volunteer if they, if someone complains about sitting next to a dog, first of all, they're a monster. Um
1: who, who who was the journalist who complained about that? Mark Helprin? That's right. Yeah, and
0: um and then we saw what happened to him. <laughs> um, he turned out to be a monster. It, it turns out that it's very indicative of it. Um I do think that so I haven't seen any emotional support peacocks or anything like that, but I am—I basically am one of these guys who think it's one of the few things I really think the Europeans have down better than Americans do is that they've managed to inject dogs into more nooks and crannies of of everyday life. It drives me crazy the you know outdoor restaurants that don't let you have your dog outside um, sitting if it's well behaved you know and if if you know your dog's not well behaved you don't bring it right there's some personal responsibility and that kind of thing. Uh, But I have not seen any great emotional support animals. I did post this wonderful picture of my niece hugging their new dog, Ollie, this puppy golden retriever who was awesome. And she was basically the dog's uh, emotional support human because the dog was uh, terrified of going on car rides, which he's going to have to get over. So
1: so someone of my acquaintance, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember who, asserted to me that he or she saw an emotional support wolf. At an airport, big if true. Yeah. So <laughs> it, my my response to that was: if I see a wolf in an airport, I'm the one who needs emotional support. Yeah, <laughs> like,
0: um, what's why is there a wolf here? My hunches: it was probably some sort of husky kind of dogger, but I I, I don't know. I, I I'm very skeptical about the emotional support wolf story. Yeah. But just, that's just me. It's, it's my journalistic skepticism kicking in. So
1: are you accusing me of of dishing out fake news? Yes. <sighs> All right, fine. Um, well, then I'm going to move back to book-related questions, then, just as just despite you. Uh, <laughs> how has writing the book changed your outlook for the United States? Uh, what are the prospects for instilling a sense of gratitude for the miracle? And I would just like to point out that on this question, it does not look like Miracle has a capital M, uh, which in the book it does. So it should be capitalized.
0: Um. So at the end of liberal fascism, I write about this in the conclusion a little bit. At the end of liberal fascism, I, was, I go off for a while about how I really don't think America could be an authoritarian dictatorship, you know, an Orwellian police state, jackboots stomping on a human face kind of place, because there's just something in our political, cultural DNA that, that prevents that. I've always loved the line that America could choke on a gnat, but it swallows tigers whole. And I still largely believe that, but I don't. I don't think it's an iron law anymore. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I did believe that at the time is that, you know, contrary to what you would think, there's an enormous debate about whether or not in academic fascism stuff, there's an enormous debate about whether or not Nazism was fascist, whether it was loyal to the, the fascist doctrine that was laid out by Mussolini, and and then you get out. Further, you know, Franco almost certainly wasn't a fascist. He was just an authoritarian dictator called Dio type. And, and so one of the things that shocked me most when I was working on liberal fascism was discovering that the total number of people, not counting like Ethiopians and places where they invaded, you know, North Africa, but the total number of like domestic Italian people that the Italians themselves killed was like between seven and 17. It just wasn't a big number. Now, they did all sorts of other things, because Mussolini eventually became Hitler's bitch, and you can get into all these details, right? And they did eventually cave to Hitler, um, although Mussolini didn't, it's a long story, and sent off all the Jews and all of that. And Mussolini was a dictator, and he beat people up, and he was almost certainly a rapist, and all these kind of of things. But he wasn't Hitler, right? And part of the reason why Italy wasn't nearly as horrific as Germany is that Italians are just much more laid-back people. First of all, biological racism in a country with so many different bloodlines um, is very difficult to sell to people. And while there was some anti-Semitism in Italy, it was almost entirely theological, right? Because that was the roots of it. it was, a lot of it was papal states for a very long time. And you had to believe that Jewish souls could be saved German anti-Semitism was biologically based it was a very different concept it never took hold in Italy and so the point is is that fascism nationalism all these kinds of things they bring out things in your national character and if you read Jonah Goldhagen's book on the um, uh, Hitler's willing executioners and the history of anti-Semitic violence going back almost a thousand years you can see how sort of Nazism brought out something that was already existent in in Germany that just wasn't there in Italy, and I make a similar argument about America. There's just something better about American culture um, that just shrugs off the idea for very long, at least for a long time of having a dictator. Um, and I still believe that as a generalization. I just don't think it's an ironclad rule anymore because I think, you know, as I say at the end of Liberal Fascism, you can have we were, we're in danger of Algis Huxley's dystopian future, where, you know, we would have prepackaged joy delivered to us. Uh, tenth graders have been writing essays for 50 years trying to answer the question, what's so wrong with Brave New World if everyone's happy? And I think Charles Murray and I have talked about this on the podcast. You know, what if you have virtual reality that actually you can, dis- like the holodeck, and you can just disappear and live a made-up life and enjoy it so much more than a job, you know, uh, cleaning up roadkill or, you know, adding up numbers or whatever it is, we could just see large swaths of people just sort of vanish. And so part of my concern, so Joseph Schumpeter, who I read a lot of for this book, um, one of his great insights in economics was that you can't take snapshots of things. Snapshots tell you a lot about something, but the only way to truly understand something is over a series of time. So a snapshot of the Titanic tells you a lot about the Titanic. You know, it doesn't tell you everything. Right, because if you take it, the snapshot at the when it's just leaving port, it's a great looking boat, um, and doesn't you know? And so you need to know the whole story. And so I think we are in danger of going through a sort of Huxleyan dystopian phase. And the problem with going into a Huxleyan dystopian phase is that there's there's no reason to believe that would be a steady state and stop there. If you look at these incel people, right? If you look at uh, some of the alt right nutters. You go through a phase where you breed what C.S. Lewis would call men without chests, and then these men without chests crave glory and meaning, and they look for it in places like nationalism and violence and all of the rest. And I, so I, I, I'm less confident that, that the whole process of process played out couldn't end in a much worse place than just simply people vegging out on their couches eating pot brownies. That may be a necessary stage, but it wouldn't stop there.
1: So I want to say something briefly about that, because I, I agree with you. Um, but if you actually read or reread uh, 1984 and Brave New World, they're less mutually exclusive than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, for example, it's stated throughout 1984 that the the proles, like 95% of the population, are not... The, the apparatus of the state doesn't really work to oppress them very much. It just sort of distracts them with uh, the lottery and with Bigfoot erotica. Um... Uh, <laughs> Where And in Brave New World, the, the, it has the, the, the book has this reputation of it doesn't really have a totalitarian state. But John the Savage, at one point, when he's trying to like get people riled up and to rebel against the state, agents of the state show up, like police, police officers. They don't have guns, but they have guns that like pump uh, sedative drugs into the air to calm everyone down. And that, that, to me, seems like an exercise of force of a sort. So those those two futures are le- are more compatible I think than than the reputations of both book would suggest that's a, that's
0: it that's an interesting point
1: so another since we're being all literary right now let's let's just stick with one more book question we almost are almost out of time, so we'll see how long this gets us um, Many see your book as criticism of tribalism, but you seem to argue that tribalism is an inherent aspect of human nature so how should we think of tribalism
0: so we should think of tribalism a lot like I think about nationalism. You know my, the analogy I always use with nationalism is that you know, it's like salt. A pinch of salt brings the meal together, it brings out the flavor, it really sort of unifies the dish. Too much salt ruins it. Way too much salt is literally poisonous, because all poisons are determined by the dosage, not the substance. So too much nationalism is a huge problem. The same thing goes with tribalism. If you can channel it in a positive way or you can sort of coordinate it off so that you're only sort of crazy tribal when you cover yourself in body paint and cheer the Green Bay Packers or something like that, that's fine, right? But when you start applying it into politics, when you start demonizing the other, when you start saying that people of other tribes are, are literally not human, then you get into much more trouble. You know, part of the, one of the great influences of me on this book Uh, is the passage from Fatal Conceit by Friedrich Hayek where he talks about the differences between the microcosm and the macrocosm. And he points out, so the microcosm is essentially the family. Um, But it's also the neighborhood, your community, um, the people you know face to face as human beings, the people in your Dunbar's number. And Hayek points out, makes the same argument I make in my book about how uh, we we evolved as creatures of tribes, that we were in tribes, we were... We evolved to be in small little groups where we shared resources, where we had reciprocity. I keep telling people, in my family, I am a communist. Because it really is literally from each according to his ability to each according to his need. I do not charge my daughter for food. Um, I do not put price tags on everything in the fridge. right? And so the logic of the microcosm, is very different than the logic of the macrocosm, which Hayek would call the extended order of liberty, the world of contracts, the world of markets and customers and clients, and the rule of law, where the state has a monopoly on violence. All of that stuff, that's, that's the macrocosm. And the microcosm is where you actually live. It's where you know people, where you feel needed, where you have earned success, where you love people and people love you. And if... If your uncle comes and knocks on your door at three in the morning and says, I need to sleep on your couch, you say, let me go get the blankets. If a stranger comes and knocks on your door and says, I need to sleep on your couch, you call the cops, right? That's the difference between the microcosm and the macrocosm. And the, the, so it's not about getting rid of tribalism or that desire to belong to a group. It's about channeling it and reserving it for those areas where it is healthy. Um, And ideally, you'll have lots of different tribal attachments. Not a single one. I'm against monism in all things. There is no, that line from Curly in City Slickers where he says, you gotta figure out in your life what's your one thing is garbage. You should have lots of things. You'll be a better husband or wife or father or son or, or mother, or friend, if you've got lots of things in your life and you don't make one person your everything, um, or, or your job your everything, or anything your everything. And so the fundamental point, and this is, again gets back to this prequel of the liberal fascism point, is that every form of totalitarianism and oppression and authoritarianism and tyranny in all of human history has been the attempt to take the logic of the microcosm and apply it to the macrocosm. Whether we treat the divine right of our kings as our fathers who rule over us like we are their children, right? Or whether um, we are all one tribe or one family. Um, Nationalism, socialism, communism, fascism, these are all different forms of tribalism, which are, are different forms of trying to take the, the logic of the microcosm and apply it to the whole country. Communism is tribalism for one class. Fascism was tribalism for one, one nation. Nationalism is, is tribalism for one people. The second you try to nationalize this kind of stuff is when you have real problems because then the logic of the extended order of markets, of exchange, goes away and all the oars have to be pulling in the same direction. Everyone's got to agree. There could be no islands of separateness in the society. And at the same time, it's just worth pointing out, taking the macrocosm and applying it to the microcosm destroys that too, which is part of Schumpeter's point. If you take the logic of contracts and, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of the gesellschaft and not the gemeinschaft, um, and you apply it to the family, you'll kill the family. If you start charging your kid for food, at least before they're, say, 18 You got problems, right? If you treat your family like they're employees, you got problems. And so the trick is not, you know, it's it's like the old, uh, you know, peanut butter cup commercial. Don't get your gazelle shaft and your gamin shaft. Just keep them separate. Um, Last question. Well,
1: it's a shame that you're not going to really get time to answer this. Well, is this a
0: hard out, or can we just do one last question? So we have an eloquent close.
1: Well, it depends how you want to answer this question. Okay. The question is, how is your cornhole game? Dear God! Maybe we should just close and not and just yeah, leave that to, you know, the, to um, the ages.
0: This is a crazy throwback to a episode of Glop, where I was out at the Broadmoor for giving a speech, and as a sort of corporate exercise, they had this massive game of cornhole, which I did not know that there was a G-rated thing called cornholing. Invented uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, by the way. And I, it just had a game with you, with the beanbag in the hole kind of thing. And we did the podcast, and I could not stop with the juvenilia <laughs> and the giggling and the double entendres, and I kept making Rob Long giggle uncontrollably. And, uh, and it's funny, because the cornholing is back in the news today. And I, again, this is not a, Schneiderman reference or anything like that, because apparently a a riotous fight broke out at a family reunion cornhole game. And there's videos of it on the interwebs. So we will close with that. Thanks to everybody for putting up with this nonsense and for indulging my exhaustion. And uh, thanks to everybody again who's bought the book and who listens to this. Subscribe. Reviews. We're almost at 2,000 reviews on iTunes. And um, I'll be back later today to do a special two-man glop with Rob Long. Thanks, everybody.